dear Alice, you are quite the meanest girl I know. Why haven't you written to me when I know you have lots more time for it than I have? I am pining and homesick for some news of Staten Island. Do write and tell your famishing friend all you can. It seems useless to say I'm having a gorgeous time, as I don't see how anyone could help it down here. If this is not the place to turn a girl's head in, so help me gracious. Last night I went on a moonlight sail. Oh, it was scrumptious. Now, Alice, do write me one letter before I leave. Love to all inquiring friends and yourself. Ever your loving friend, Trudy. My dear Miss Austin. My dear Miss Austin. My dear Miss Austin. My dear Miss Lolly. My dear Miss Austin. My dear Miss Austin. My dear Miss Love. I'm Pamela Banos, in collaboration with the Alice Austin House Museum, and this is My Dear Alice, a podcast series that explores the life of photographer Alice Austin through her photographs and these letters that were discovered decades after her death. You'll find images of some of these letters and scrapbooks along with photographs referred to here at the website that accompanies this podcast. Chapter 3. It's tricky to tell Alice Austin's story through the letters she received because basically everyone is always asking Alice to join them, or they are thanking her for sending them a photo, or are relaying the time they're having while they're away from her. So we don't exactly know what happens when they're together, unless Alice photographs the gathering, but which she does mostly seem to do. And yet, like any archive, we only know what is there, not so much about what is missing. Just as there are gaps in these letters that were returned to clear comfort 40 years after they were found in a closet there, from the thoroughness of Austin's photography, it seems certain that there should be more pictures. And even so, Alice is mostly behind the camera, and when she's in the picture, she is sphinx-like, her expression deadpan. In the handful of images when she is smiling or laughing, it is because someone is provoking her, and she's having trouble containing herself. My guess is that her own letters have a dry or wry humor. At any rate, the collection of letters residing at today's Alice Austin House Museum, where they were sent in the first place, do reveal more about the correspondent, even as they also help illustrate Alice's relationship with each of them. Here's Julie Brett, in January 1890, asking Alice to visit her in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where there are going to be numerous gatherings. Things are always fun with Julie Brett. Oh, I'm so glad you can come. Yes, I will expect you on the train that gets you at 4 on Friday the 24th, rain or shine. On the 31st, the boys had promised an assembly and Saturday a tea, so please remember you will not be home before that. For whatever reason, Alice didn't respond, so Julie wrote again. My dear Alice, this is an extra letter, but I'm going to ask you if you won't come and stay a week or so with me. Now please say yes. I want you to come on the 24th on the 1220 train. I hope that it will be jolly. There's to be an assembly, I hope, and I expect to have a little dance on the 24th. We are bound to have fun, for there is a card party Thursday and a tea and another card party. So be sure and come and bring two or three party dresses. Be sure and let me know right away, tomorrow if you can. But please come, Alice dear, as I want you so much, and Lent comes in February, and there will be no more fun until about June. 
so you must come. It is not far, and I have set my heart on you. As breakfast is ready, I must say goodbye. In haste, Julie Brett. Be sure and let me know as soon as possible. Alice did go to Bethlehem, joining Julie at her party, and letters to her followed. She apparently wrote home, letting her mother know of her arrival, and immediately received a reply, filling in on the doings of the previous three days. Well, on Saturday I went to town, got the feather trimming, pocket comb, and stockings, of which there were only two pairs left, which were found after a long search. They said at first all were gone. I had a great struggle at Mary's for lunch first to get my order taken, then to have it filled, then waiting for change. I got quite wild and could not get into the street until a quarter to two. I was afraid I would be late at the opera, but as I climbed the first stairs, I heard the first sound of the orchestra. It was a magnificent performance in every respect. There's no chorus in Tristan and no overture, but a long orchestral prelude before each act. I never heard such tremendous waves of sound. The orchestra seemed like one great instrument, the scenery very good, especially the moonlit garden of the love scene. The enormous audience shouted and stamped till worn out. The curtain was raised three times after the first act, and three times the singers came before the curtain. Trudy and Edith were there. It was not over until five minutes to six, all but four hours. I got the book for you. Take care of yourself, my dearest babe, and give my kind regards to Mrs. Brett from your mama. And then she heard from Trudy, who also spoke of the opera, but didn't mention seeing anyone. Alice had a subscription to New York's Metropolitan Opera for many years. The season's tickets are in her scrapbooks. I suppose you will be on hand for the opera this Saturday, will you not? Effie Emmons is going to have at Holmes these next two Saturdays, and I believe she is going to ask you to pour tea for her this Saturday. She asked me your address, and I told her I would give it to her if she would come to the house, and I also told her that we had an opera every Saturday, and that I should not be able to come to her teas, which of course made her feel very sad. Tristan and Isolde was simply magnifique, and I did wish you could have seen it. Last Saturday you did not miss anything, as it was a repetition of the barber, etc. I did not go, as I was sick, and did not care enough about it to make the effort. There is nothing going on down here this week, strange to relate. I shall be away having some clothes fixed up. I must have a pink dress for the last assembly on the 13th. Now then, Alice, remember me to Miss Brett, and with lots of love for yourself, I remain as ever your loving friend, Trude Eccleston. In mid-April, Trudy went with her sister Edith's family to Fort Douglas in Salt Lake City, Utah, where her Army lieutenant brother-in-law was transferred. Alice photographed the family on their front porch in Staten Island and titled the picture Moving Day. Trudy's first letter to Alice arrived a month later, acknowledging that it was the first she'd written. So I hope you feel properly complimented. I have grown so lazy since my arrival here that I do nothing but loaf. Trudy seems pretty carefree, conveying to Alice all her new experiences. I can't help but think of Alice's feelings in reading of the excitement of the new surroundings. She had not yet traveled beyond the northeastern states. The post is beautifully situated right at the foot of the snow mountains. We have an exquisite view of the valley and the city below, and also the lake, which is like an ocean and as blue as a sapphire. And what she must have thought at hearing about Trudy's expanded social life. The girls who are visiting here now, I do not like very much. 
They are too free and easy for my style, decidedly fast. So much for the girls, now for the men. I like all the officers so far. I could not very well help it, as they have all been so polite to me. If I have any preference, it is for the older bachelors, with perhaps one exception, Mr. Gregg. We have had quite a flirtation in a mild way. In a subsequent letter, she wrote, I'm having two very flourishing flirtations with Dr. Edie and Mr. Gregg. I like the latter better, but I don't let on I do. Mr. G is much younger and handsomer by far. The doctor is an old hand at flirtation, so is more exciting, but I have wisely decided to let up a little now as things are getting too hot for me. Mr. G gets mad whenever I am with the doctor and vice versa, and that making up business gets to be too tiresome after a while. Trudy's letter went on for 20 pages, 10 double-sided two-page spreads, providing details including of her dancing activities. The band here plays splendidly. I never dance to better music, and the floor is fine. They have these informal dances every Friday eve. The band plays selections between the dances, and we all go home at 11. Tomorrow night we are to have a big dance. And from a subsequent letter, this eve we are all going up to the hop room to raise cane. One of the girls knows a lot of new dances, and she is to teach us all how to dance them. We will also have the song and dance and razzle-dazzle, and end up with a ballet in which Mr. Gregg always excels as the highest kicker. She conveyed her sporting activities. I'm gradually waking them up to tennis. The court was in dreadful condition, so I woke the colonel up to the fact that I was very anxious to play. So he has had a lot of soldiers fixing it up in a fine style, so that now we are all tennis crazy, and we are going to begin operations tomorrow. I have been challenged by all the officers, so mean to have some fun and plenty of exercise to keep from getting too enormous. She spoke of going to the Big Salt Lake, meeting one of the Brigham Young family, and gave her general impressions of the Mormons. I went to the lake with the gang, as they call themselves on Saturday, and enjoyed it immensely. It takes about two hours to go from here on the train. The salt is so thick that one can't sink, it is impossible to swim anyway but dog fashion, and floating is what everyone has to do, as you can't sit at the bottom. I ate four bags of popcorn that day and a ham sandwich large enough to feed a Mormon family. Trudy is funny, and fun, and a lot about Trudy. Near the end of the letter, Alice's presence shines through, alongside Trude's younger brother, who also misses her. Tell Brother Sam, the crushed morsel of rose is pressed in my Bible, and your forget-me-not shall be put in an even safer place. Alice speaks the language of flowers here, as she will again later in the story. Trude ended her first letter encouraging Alice to send gossip and more letters, and finished in her particular way. Give my love to Julia, and tell her not to try to comfort my friends for me. It is much better to let them forget me, in a measure, than to keep my memory so green all the time. Give lots of love to all my family when you see them and write soon again. With piles of love for your own dear self, I'm your loving friend, Trudy Eccleston. I cannot write to anyone first, haven't got the time. My friends must good and write me first. That summer, instead of joining the Ecclestons in the Hudson Valley, Alice visited Bessie Strong and her uncle Pete's family in New Brunswick, New Jersey. She attended July tennis matches and also went to a place called Dennings Point by Fishkill on the Hudson, 
where she would repeatedly photograph the home of the elderly Denning sisters, who were distant relatives of her maternal grandmother. Jane Denning, her sister Emily Denning Van Rensselaer, and Emily's daughter Emmy lived on an estate called Preskill. Alice photographed the estate grounds as well as the women and the rooms of the house. Her interior photographs are exquisite in their light and clarity. Each of these three women wrote to Alice over the years in thanks and praise for her photographs. In one letter, well-known amateur photographer John Coates Brown is noted as recognizing Austin's talent, suggesting that she leave her home darkroom and get a studio. Mr. Brown says, without any flattery, the interior of the church is one of the best interiors he ever saw, and he would be proud to have done any as well. And the artist must be good indeed to be entrusted with such a lens. I was telling him of your small accommodations, and he said, tell Miss Austin she ought to make her work pay for a studio, that her photographs would pay well and satisfy any customer. Later, Alice sent John Brown some of her landscape photographs, and he shared instructions on how to mix developer and other chemical formulas with tips for printing and toning. The elderly Jane Denning would also praise Alice. I think, my dear Lola, you are a wonderful specimen of the girls of the present age. And she commented on Austin's portrait of her sister and niece with their dog, Beauty. Emmy is delighted with Beauty, and I am equally pleased with Emmy. Her downcast, smiling face conceals the strong lines of thoughtful meditation on the misfortunes of others which characterize her life. Cousin Emily looks like herself. And now I must thank you again in the name of the Preskeel Trio. Do give our love to your mother and aunt, ever yours affectionately, Jane Louise Denning. The photo of mother and daughter Van Rensselaer were among others of the Preskill estate that were separated from a bound album and sold on eBay last year. It is not clear from which collection they were derived. In July 1890, Alice photographed Emmy and Emily and some local women and children who had come inside to witness the annual nighttime bloom of the Sirius plant. Seated in darkness, the group is lit by magnesium powder flash. Smoke from the little flash explosion veils the side of the photograph. Austin spent the rest of her summer in Bennington, Vermont, where Julia Martin was staying with the elderly Mrs. Cooper, who she would soon begin working for. During her Vermont visit, Alice photographed covered bridges, waterfalls, and vistas as she traveled by donkey cart, which she also photographed, and upon her return mounted large prints into a photo album, some of which also sold on eBay last year. While staying with Julia, Alice met Mrs. Snively, Mrs. Cooper's daughter, who Julia often mentioned in her letters. Alice photographed them all. Altogether, Julia, Alice, Mrs. Snively, and whoever else they could round up had loads of fun. They went to a village fair and put their faces in the cutout holes of a painted backdrop of a group called the Simpkins family, with Alice assuming a male role, and all the faces deadpan serious. 
One night, Alice photographed herself with Mrs. Snively and Julia Martin, the three of them in bed together, each with their nighties buttoned to their chin and an arm overhead. Julia feigns she's asleep, while Mrs. Snively and Alice gaze off in different directions. Who really knows what is going on in this heavily staged picture? Earlier that same day, a smiling Mrs. Snively, arm in arm with another woman, pulled up their skirts and kicked their legs can-can style, scandalously revealing their black stockings. That other woman, Mary Sanford, deserves a history of her own. In 15 years, she and her life partner, Helen Stokes, would be living in Manhattan's Greenwich Village, active in the burgeoning socialist movement. Helen Stokes would become one of the founding members of the American Civil Liberties Union. Mrs. Snively is a different sort of compelling character, being the wife of an Episcopal minister with two small boys. She was nearly a decade older than Julia and Alice, who were both 24 during that summer of 1890. Julia was smitten with Mrs. Snively, and Alice teased her for it. After their extended visit, they both wrote to Alice. Woe be, I have not been to see my idol, as you call her, so I have to content myself with looking at her photograph, for which I am greatly obliged to you. It is not bad, neither is it Mrs. Snively at her best. I suppose Mrs. Snively has written thanking you for the pictures, and I am overcome with jealousy. She is a trump, and no doubt about it. As I cannot get a letter from her, I have been to Mrs. Cooper's and gotten a hat box of hers, and shall keep it always with most tender care. And seeing it has belonged to her, I know it will preserve my hat from harm. Alice could be counted on for recapping visits by sending photos. The only letter from Eliza Snively confirms every photo of her that remains in the archive. My dear Alice, thank you so much for the charming photographs which reached me safely Friday afternoon. They are certainly lovely, and I cannot tell you how much pleasure they have given me. The picture of Laddie and myself are the very best we have ever taken. I am very much pleased with mothers. It is a great thing to have her just as I see her every day. I really don't understand how they all could have turned out so well. Miss Sanford and I enjoyed the Simpkins family and our dance greatly. The sleep baby's sleep is fine. I can't tell you how I miss you girls. I have been as blue as possible ever since you left. Alice had started making dramatizations for the camera, and her subjects contributed with their own quirkiness. In group photos, they'd look in different directions or present a particular object to the camera. These seem to have been late 19th century ploys, as other group photos from the time show similar posings and gestures, some of which may have been left over from painted portrait conventions, others from the lingering novelty of the camera. Today we have an impression of Victorians as being stuffy, humorless, and lacking color, literally. Sometimes we forget that some of what we know of that era is through the limitations of photography. They had to stand still for the camera, sometimes for longer than felt natural. Early flash pictures feel more contemporary in the way they capture a moment. And the monochrome, or sepia toning, today used to convey the past, or nostalgia, muted the colorful clothing and interiors, which from the patterns and textures show fashion and rooms as nearly visual overloads. 
effectively dulled in every way through photography and the passage of time. Alice Austin's dramatizations for the camera remain enigmatic because their immediate context has been lost. We're left with sometimes stunning images that resonate because they give us a glimpse into not just another time, but into the private lives of people so unlike ourselves. Or are they? Here's Julie Brett. Alice, do you know I am crazy to travel? Also, I seem to be possessed with the idea lately. It is so strange you should be also. I wish we could go together. Can't we? Maybe you can propose something. How lonely you must be without Gertrude. Is it not strange? Everyone seems to be away traveling around the country. A friend of mine sails on the 19th. I would have loved to go to Europe with them, but they are going to make quite an expensive trip of it. So my mama said no. I did not mind so very much. Still, I do want to go somewhere, don't you? To see something of the world. You know, we are so young and would like so much to see something of the world, you know? Trudy Eccleston's last letter from Utah, months before Julie Brett acknowledged how lonely Alice must be without her, spoke of her flirtations with two men who were competing for her attention. One of those flirtations may have resulted in the officer's transfer to New York. This man, only ever referred to as Mr. Gregg, appears in Alice's photographs on Staten Island in the summer of 1891. He's at the beach with a group of Alice's crowd and Trudy. He's dressed finely, posing in front of Clear Comfort, alone and with Trude. And Alice's photographs in which she appears with Trudy take a decided turn. In what today might be her most famous photograph, Alice and Trude Eccleston pose for the camera in a curtained and stage-like setting. Theatrical like Victorian burlesque, they stand facing each other in white corseted undergarments black stockings, and white half-face masks. Their hair is down, the only such picture in the entire collection. And alarmingly, Alice's hair is almost to her knees. They lean toward each other, faces nearly touching, holding cigarettes to their mouths. The scene could only be more scandalous if it was taken within a church rectory, which, in fact, it was, because that's where Trudy lived, her father being the church minister. Another photograph from that same August evening shows the two women in bed gesturing toward the camera at the foot of the bed. Each has a hand open, palm forward, and Trudy holds up her other hand between them, gesturing the number two. It reads as if they're signaling 525. The meaning is lost. Honestly, I'm a little lost as to how these photographs were even made. Both photos were shot with a flash which still consisted of lighting a wick to ignite magnesium powder, creating a burst of light. Camera self-timers would not exist for another 10 years. At least that's when the first patent was applied for. So perhaps Alice was able to modify her camera somehow to delay triggering the shutter, or there was a very long wick leading to the flash ignition. All of this is to say, things are always more complicated than they first appear. A couple of months after these puzzling photos were made, Austin composed another of today's most popular photographs from the collection, and which in this case she titled or captioned by writing on the glass negative, merging the image with text, called The Darned Club, 
The picture features Alice and Trude, along with friends Julia Lord and Sue Ripley, who were cousins. The women are divided into face-to-face -face pairs in profile to the camera. Trude and Alice stand close, their hands clasped with fingers interlaced around each other's waist. Julia and Sue are in the same position, but standing further apart, Sue with a stifled smile. Alice is the only one taking her position with total seriousness, standing so close to Trude that their bodies fuse, her shoe nearly on top of Trudy's. Earlier in the summer, in another titled photograph, Alice and Trude appear facing the camera holding hands while struggling to balance in the water in beach inner tubes. Alice's script says, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, the twin characters from Alice in Wonderland. The darn club said much later to have been named by the men who were excluded from the women's activities. The name also seems to have been a play on words. Earlier in the summer, Alice's mother had written, Sue Ripley came here to say that her darning club would be put off till Tuesday and would take the form of tennis. These same women also had a cooking club which met regularly and was also photographed by Alice. There are a few letters that reference darning socks, which is to say, mending holes in fabric. By the time Alice photographed the darn club, Trude Eccleston and Mr. Gregg's engagement had been announced. With this information, it's not difficult for me to read further into Alice's presence in her portraits with Trudy. Still, there's no indication or acknowledgement of this engagement anywhere in Austin's archive. I found it in a two-sentence announcement in a San Francisco newspaper. Austin's photographs and scrapbooks illustrate what was important to her. They give visual, albeit cryptic, glimpses into her 19th century life. The letters that she saved further illuminate the distant past, which is why they have such an aura to them. Here's Julia Martin, Julie Brett, and Bessie Strong, bringing life to activities that defined these young women of the late 19th century. Horses, parties, dances, and fashion. Slaying is fine, and yesterday afternoon I had a splendid sleigh ride with my friend Mr. Durant. Two horses and a cutter, and at the rate of a mile a minute. The day I left you, I went up to Uncle's first, and he was not down, so I went uptown and got a dandy cape. Black sable, just like Russian, only black. I'm sure you would like it. Ask them to show them when you get yours. Wish you could see my three hats. I have trimmed my evening bonnet, black velvet with gold trimmings and pink orchids. It is a thing to be proud of. This summer, Mrs. S. has invested in a pole for her buckboard, and sometimes she drives two horses, and one goes like the wind. For the last two Saturday evenings, we have had choir meeting here, and after the practice was over, we played ring a peg, and last night, whist. We had very good fun. Last night we went to a spider party at Dodson's. It was the greatest fun. They had twine run all over the house, a ball for each person. And then we had to untwist it, and at the end win a prize. Then we danced afterwards. The ice is splendid, and we had a fine skate yesterday. The thermometer was eight below zero, but it was cold. I slept with all my underclothes on. 
we had a most delightful time at the phantom party at Mrs. Wells, and the Thursday evening, we all met again at a progressive euchre party at the Deschlers. Our last gaiety was a dove or hen tea party. It was very small, only about 14 girls being invited, but we had a very pleasant time. I've been having a most hard question to decide. It is whether to have a pale pink mole or a white and green for a ball dress. I have two whites, so I rather think it will end in me getting the pink. What would you if you were me? Cousin Evie sent me one of the Staten Island papers containing an account of the Cricketer's Ball. From it, I learned that Miss Austen was attired in white nun's veiling, profusely trimmed with lace, a pearl necklace, and pearls on her hair. Did you have a good time? Mr. Baldwin told me he went with your party and was dancing with Miss Eccleston when she sprained her ankle. It must have somewhat spoiled the fun for all of you. I told Charlie Ludlow that you would probably be here for some of the dances. He seemed very much pleased. next episode, all kinds of relationships take center stage, and Henry Gilman is back in the fray. Hoping to see you in the not-too-distant future, I am truly yours, Henry K. Gilman. This episode featured the following voice talent in their order of appearance. Rachel Hilbert, Sidney Hastings-Smith, Royty Butler, Penelope Banos, Liv Glassman, Ella Stevens, Natalie Welber, and Benjamin Juris. Sound editor, Kendall Barron. Original music by Nicholas Rosa Palermo and me, Pamela Banos. Other music from Free Sound, Muse Open, and other public domain and attributed sources. Links are in the website that accompanies this podcast, where you'll also find images of some of the letters and photographs that are referred to in each episode. That's mydearalice.org.